chord structure and movement and so forth. I love that class. It's probably my favorite class. Um, so I enjoy melody and harmony and those types of things. But I really enjoy the words. And so as we sing in a congregational sense, we're supposed to sing not just because we enjoy uh, the song in terms of, of the tune and the harmonies, but we sing with the spirit of understanding. And then uh, the Bible also says as we sing, whether it's uh, uh, solos or in a group as a choir, or we sing congregationally, that we're to teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that we teach while we sing. And you don't teach through the, you don't teach through the melody or the harmony you, you teach. Now that can be a distraction. But you, you teach through the, through the words. I, I enjoy good words. Good, good stuff. That's a very rich song. That's Sam's favorite song, isn't it? I think it is. She told me that a long time ago. I never forgot that. I think she had it at her wedding. I believe she did. Yeah. You need to know that, Mama. I think so. I'm just having fun with you. Let's say she didn't. But I think she did. Uh, I want you to turn to John, Gospel of John, John chapter 1. We'll look there in just a moment, John chapter 1. Several weeks ago, um, Paula and I went to uh, our son, our second-born son, Jonathan, his uh, last baseball game of the regular season. It wasn't, they had some tournament games after that, but uh, the last game of the regular season and um, <clears throat> we had only been able to attend, I guess that was the only one Paul got to go to. I went to the first game and the last game. So I just got to go to two games. And so uh, they won that game. They didn't win a lot of games. When John went there to that, uh, to that school, the baseball program had been closed for years. Uh, the baseball field literally looked like a cow pasture. There was no infield. There was no pitcher's mound. There was no batting uh, area. Everything was grown over with grass. And uh, if you saw the, the Google Earth of it, you, you couldn't tell it was, a, it was a baseball area. He had to recruit a team. He had to walk through the halls and ask guys to come out. As a result, part of it was... The, the school he was in, it's a very, um, trying to search for the correct words here, uh, a school where, where kids don't have a lot of opportunities. So most of them don't have fathers. I mean, 80% of them don't have fathers in the home. And, uh, and they, they don't understand discipline and they hadn't even played baseball. They loved basketball, but they, they hadn't even had any repetitions in baseball. So they didn't know how to throw the ball. They didn't know how to bat. They didn't know anything. So if you just think you can line up and do it, it's a different thing. So he had to, he had to get the field. He had to prepare the field. He had to teach the players, recruit the players, community relationships. All of those things. So he's in his... Third year, and I remember uh, at the last game, I commented to Paula, 
So I looked around, and, and the area there was packed. There were, adult, there were adults there, which is highly, highly unusual. And uh, there were a lot of kids there. And you, you may not understand this, but kids don't go to baseball games. They go to football games. They go to basketball games. They usually don't go to baseball games. Not a lot of kids. But there was an excitement in the area there, and it was very, very unusual. And I watched those boys as they, they were attentive and, and responded and so forth. And the thought came to my mind, and I commented to Paul, I said, you know, the, the, the most difficult thing, but the best thing that John did here was not the field. When he, and, and he raised money, uh, over $100,000, to uh, get that field prepared. And did some other things. He did a lot of stuff. But I said the, mo- the most amazing thing that he did in these three years is he changed the culture. He changed the culture of this team. Because we were there for the first game. And how these young men began to believe in themselves. And they responded to authority. And uh, how they look at you. And, and there, there's a professionalism about them. And it's, it's an amazing thing to see. So they won that game. And, you know, it was, you know, thought it was, it was a World Series game. It was the fourth game they had won all year. Now, you don't celebrate four games, but you do then. It was the most games they'd won since he'd been there in a year. The first year they won one game. The second year they won two games. I don't know how many they won. And they won four, four games at that point. So they ended up last year, they won their next two tournament games. They won six games this past year. So we were there. They won their fourth game. So John called. He, he said, hey, Mom, Dad, come on out to the outfield. We went out in the right field. He said, I want, I want to talk to the guys. I just want y'all to come out here and be a part of this. And just, just come out here. So we went out. We were kind of in the background and, and as he talked with the coaches and talked to the young men and you know he said some things and he says yeah and here's what I didn't know and the reason I'm telling you this he said guys he said uh, we won four games and you know they're celebrating he said this is the most game that the name of the school is Howard High School he said this is the most games that Howard High School has won in baseball in 30 years 30 years you know, that's like winning 40 games, these guys. And then they won their next two. They won six games. I talk to John pretty regularly, sometimes when he's discouraged, sometimes when he's driving home late at night. And one of the ways that, that he accomplished some of these things is that he, he, he didn't do it at once. He's been there for three years, and it was a slow go. But he accomplished it in phases and uh, he celebrated small victories, and it required a lot of patience. Now, on that level, on that level, there's some differences. But on that level, it's very similar to, to developing and growing a church. Because reaching people and growing people is not just intentional, but sometimes it requires phases and sometimes it's not clearly defined, but it requires a lot of patience. 
In fact, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, Paul told uh, Timothy as he preached, he said, and when you preach as a pastor, he said, I want you to preach with long-suffering. I've heard a lot of preachers when they exhort at preachers' conferences, he said, now, the Bible says you need to reprove, you need to rebuke. Yeah, all that's in there. But you know what the next uh, uh, prepositional phrase is? With. You know what it says? With long-suffering. Now, why did he say that? Why did the Holy Spirit tell him to say that? Well, first of all, people don't enjoy that. Second of all, after you do it, sometimes it's like talking to that speaker right there. Sometimes people just don't do anything about it. And you, you had better have a lot of patience. He told Timothy again in First and Second Timothy are great books for, for people in ministry. He said, you have fully known my, and he gave a list of things. He said, you have fully known my, and one of the qualities he put in there, you have fully known my patience. And I'm not preaching on patience, but I'm going to take that idea for a moment. You fully know my patience. Now, if we're going to, to reach people for Christ, if you're going to be effective in evangelism, you've got to have long-suffering. You've got to have patience. And as we, we go through phases of evangelism and realize that, that evangelism is not an event. Now, I kind of grew up, and I don't think people were wrong. It was an accidental thing. But we were taught that evangelism is an event. I mean, the end all was to get them to bow their head and pray and say, Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I've rebelled against God. Please forgive me. I trust Jesus Christ as my Savior. And that's the end. And it is. But if, if we do not get them there, then we failed. And so what happens is people become discouraged. Well, that's wrong. That's wrong. You see, evangelism, it comes from the word evangel, means good news. It comes from the Greek word gospel. That's where you get it. Evangel. An evangel is a preacher, an announcer of good news. That's what an evangel is. Evangelism is one that practices the publishing of good news. Well, you can publish good news and people not receive it. So evangelism is a process, not an event. Now, it will lead to the event. In fact, there are a series of events. But, but you've, got to, you've got to be patient, and there are distinctive faces. I want to, to finish, God willing, this, this message on faces of evangelism. I've given you one last week. Phase one is you help people come to Christ. You help people come to Christ. That's the first phase. And I gave you four, four ways, four things that you can do to move people closer to believing the gospel. I'm not going to rehearse those. You can go back and listen to that on the webpage if you want to. I would recommend that you do that if you weren't here. But you can help people towards salvation. You can help them on the path to receiving Christ. And we have a responsibility to help people to practice CPR, to cultivate, to plant, and to reap, to help people. And the, the, the point I emphasized was every day, every day, daily, the Bible says they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. 
continuing daily, steadfastly. Acts chapter two, it says two times there. They just did. The, they they hit the, they took the hammer and they hit it on the, uh, the the head of the nail every day, different angels every day, every day. They cultivated every day. They planted every day. They reaped just every day. Every day, people, daily people were saved, such as should be saved every day. That wasn't the same person that did the reaping, but it was just a daily thing, just every day. And people were helping them come to Christ. That that requires patience. So you may not be you may not be the guy or the lady. That's okay. We're helping. That. That's a phase. Phase two. This is what I want to talk about this morning. And give you some more if I have time. Not just helping people, but you can bring people to Jesus. You can bring people to Jesus. Now, this is a little more intentional, but it's not any less, or it's, it's more intensive, but not less intentional. Both, of, both are intentional. You've got to be intentional about helping. You've got to be intentional about bringing. But this is a little more uh, intensive. This is when people are interested in the message. All right? And so you, you can bring them to Christ because they're interested in Jesus Christ and what you have had to say or what someone else has had to say. So you're bringing them to Christ. Now, one of the best places you see this in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, John the Baptist comes and presents Christ as the forerunner. Behold the Lamb of God. And there were two disciples there that heard him, John one thirty seven. This is John and Andrew. Uh, John the, <coughs> excuse me, not John the Baptist, but John, uh, the brother uh, of, of uh, uh, I'm sorry, my, my mind is struggling. Andrew, the brother of Peter. And the two disciples heard him, that's John the Baptist, speak. That's in verse 35. And they followed Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean they got saved, but they physically were followed. They were interested in the message of John the Baptist. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, What seek ye? Now, here's a question. What do you guys want? Can I help you? What are you interested in? And they, that is John and Andrew, said unto him, Rabbi. Now, the word rabbi means teacher, which is a saving, interpreted master. A very highly respected teacher. Where now? Watch this. Where dwellest thou? Where do you live at? Now, that's a strange. He asked them a question. They responded with a question. Now, why did they want to know where Jesus lived at? Because they had some further questions. He asked them a question. Uh, what? What can? I, how can I help you? What are you seeking? They said, "Where do you live at?" Because. Here's the idea. We got some questions, but this is going to require some time. And we don't want to stand here in the sun. Could we come to your home and ask these questions? And Jesus saith unto them, and here's the idea I want you to see. This is helping people. This is phase one, helping people. Jesus said, come and see. Now, look at that line, those three words, come and see. Now, he's helping them. This is phase one. He's helping them. To come to himself. Now they're not saved yet. 
They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. That's Roman time. That's about four o'clock in the afternoon. So they knew that the day was short, and they spent some time with Jesus, and they got saved. But they got saved because they were interested, and they got saved because Jesus helped them, because he said, hey, guys, there was some warmth, there was some interest. He said, hey, how can I help you? Well, could we talk to you? Could we expand this conversation? Could we come to your, could we come to more, uh, could we go to a restaurant? More specifically, could we come to your house? They may not ask your house. People don't ask that anymore. But could we sit down and talk? And Jesus said, well, yeah, come and see. Yeah, you can investigate this. And, and I, I want to develop this further, but I don't have time. Don't, don't be intimidated when people ask you questions. And that's, that's one reason people don't witness. They say, well, what if they ask me a question that I don't have the answer to? Let, let me give you some information. They will. And that's how you learn. You say, what am I supposed to do? What you do is you say, you know, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer. You say, well, what, what will that do to my credibility? It, it, will, it will expand in their eyes. They'll, they'll say, I finally met a Christian. That's not a know-it-all. He said, I'll do my best to find that out for you. But you'll be surprised how much you know that they don't know. And, uh, and your humility and your simplicity will win the day as opposed to, to your being Mr. Mr. Answer Man. So come and see. Come and see. And so what you're doing is you're helping them. Now... The next step is not come and see, but follow me. Follow me. Now, notice in John chapter 1, look at verse 43. Now, this is helping and bringing. You see both of these. This is phase 1 and phase 2. They're blended in here. Now, the next day, the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee. Now, watch this. And he findeth Philip. He intentionally finds Philip, who becomes one of his disciples. And he saith unto him, follow me. He doesn't say come and see, come and invest. He just comes up and he says, hey, I want you to become one of my disciples. He's more forthright with him. He, he brings him to himself. Now, Philip was a Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So they were all friends. That's the idea. Andrew, Peter, and Philip. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law, because he had been converted. And the prophet said, Right, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, This famous line, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And watch this. wonder where you learned this. Philip saith unto him, Come and see. So here in this passage, you have not just helping, but bringing. You have both. You not you not only have come and see, but you have follow me. Jesus said, "Hey, follow me." And then he, one of his disciples, practices a method and an approach that Jesus used, which is, "Well, well, come on, let's talk about this." So you have both phases here. And the first, the first example in Scripture there in John one, I told you, is just helping them. Well, come and see. Let's talk about this. You're helping them come to Christ. 
You're having a conversation with them. See, I remember when I was talking to people and, and, and going door to door that I had a nervous habit. I put my hand in my pocket and, and I, I was jingling my change because I was nervous. I never knew I was doing it. In fact, nobody told me, but they probably didn't know it. And I said, I got to stop that. I said, okay, I got to stop that because I, I am nervous. I'm just appearing nervous. I'm doing it because I am nervous. And I realized, okay, how, how can I stop this habit without being preoccupied with it? Well, I got to put myself at ease and, and create more of a, okay, well, who, who am I? Who am I as a person? And what am I doing here? I'm not, I'm not a salesman. I'm not selling Jesus. I remember I went to one home one time, and they, the lady said, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm not interested in buying anything. And I said, oh, ma'am, I, I, I'm not selling anything. I'm giving something away. I said it very simply like that. I wasn't trying to be a smart aleck. It kind of disarmed her, actually. So in the first passage, you have come and see. In the second passage, you have followed me, which is helping and bringing. And then about a year and a half later, after uh, John the Baptist was in prison, in Mark chapter 1, I alluded to this last week, in verse 17, Jesus said unto them, this is his, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. This is follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, this is strictly bringing. Okay, now they can employ some of the helping. But you see you see the phases here? This is what I'm trying to get you to see. The, these are the phases working out in front of you. And there's no one phase that is appropriate. You do all of these things. Jesus said, come ye after me, and I will make you become fishers of men. It's not evangelism. It's not about memorizing a specific plan. It's not about memorizing a script. When you do that, you're, you become a robot. I, w- I would like to tell you the best news I've heard. If you would be interested, I know that you would enjoy and, and enjoy. You would like this. And, and they're, they're thinking, who is this guy? So the answer is not, well, I'm just not ever going to do that. That's not the answer. The answer is, to okay, what are the components? I'll talk to you about this in a moment. What are the basic components of this so I can know how to present the gospel here in a practical way? Someone said this. I love this. The soul winning is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's what, that's what evangelism is. We're, just, we're spiritual beggars. We're redeemed beggars. We're saved beggars now. But it's one beggar telling another beggar, hey, let me tell you where I, where I found forgiveness, where I found fulfillment, where I found life change. Let me tell you where I, where I found instruction. And there's a humility to it all. Now, let me show you the classic bringing passage. You're in John. Let me look in John chapter 1 and verse 40. By the classic bringer, which is Andrew. Three times there's stories about Andrew in the Gospels. Three times. Every time Andrew is mentioned, a couple of things. Almost every time in the Bible Andrew is mentioned, he's mentioned as Simon Peter's brother. Not every time, but almost every time. Almost every time 
Simon Peter's brother. It's almost like he had this little moniker on him. An insignificant guy. But the three times he's mentioned in a story setting, every time he's always bringing someone to Jesus. Every time. In John 12, he's bringing the Greeks to Jesus. In John 6, he's bringing the little boy uh, that had the lunch to Jesus. And in John chapter 1 here, look at it. Notice in verse 40. One of the two which heard John speak, John is John the Baptist, and the two there is Andrew and John. One of the two, Andrew and John, which heard John the Baptist speak and followed Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. There it is. Now, watch what Andrew did. He first, I preached on this a year or two ago, he first findeth his own brother. Remember last week I told you about the, the Jerusalem principle? And I said that you're accountable to the people closest to you first. Uh, Acts 1.8, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witness unto me both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, there's a simultaneous expression there when it says both. It means at the same time. But there's also a priority principle where he talks about Jerusalem, and then the uttermost parts last. Uttermost parts are important. But the light that shines brightest shines brightest at home. And the first place is mentioned Jerusalem. Now, why did Jesus mention that first to the disciples? Because in Acts 1-8, when he gave them the commission, guess where they were? They were in Jerusalem. Your witnessing starts where you are. Wherever you are, with your relatives, with your family, where you work. Now, I've told you this before, but let me mention it. I know we're at the end of the year. When I was a youth pastor, I, I created these little uh, pieces of paper, and they had nine blocks. I had three, th- three up here, three down here, and three down here. And then uh, I, I passed out, separated them to the kids. I said, okay, at the top of it, I want you to write each class you're in, like first period, second period, third, whatever your classes are. And I want you to put what seat, because usually you sit in the same seat. And then I want you to put the people that sit in the seats around you in each class. I said, that's your Jerusalem this year. The people that, you know, in, in that, those seats around you, you're going to be held accountable at the judgment seat one day. Great white throne judgment. You're not going to be held accountable for the student body president unless he's sitting beside you. And then the guy or the girl, that's who you're accountable for. When I moved back to Huntsville in 1980, 85, to be the youth pastor here, because I grew up in Huntsville, I had a little bit of an advantage. Uh, I pulled out my yearbooks. And I didn't have the advantage of the internet. But I began to, to go to my friends. And uh, I graduated in 76, so I'd only been gone nine years. And some of my elementary, junior high, took a little bit more work. But I worked that thing. And, and I've seen a lot of them saved. In my driveway, some of them in this room. Baptize some of them. I was in a cemetery back in March. And uh, as I stood there, I counted, I counted the family members that, that I'd led to Christ and that I had baptized. Uh, 
You can do this. You can do this. I want to see my friend that uh, had gotten into drugs pretty bad. I've been gone to Virginia for about five years, and so I'd heard about it. And I went to see him. I found his address, knocked on the door. He answered the door. And I said, hey, D. That's not, I'm not going to tell you his name. Rick? I said, yeah. He said, what are you selling? Isn't that sad? Because the only reason somebody comes see you is if you want something. I want your money. I want you to sign up for something. So I'm not selling anything. I just came by to say hey to you. I, I think about you a lot. How are you doing? And we talked. I, I didn't make a lot of headway with him. I drove by another another friend recently, Jeff, in recent recent months. And you can do this. I have an advantage. I grew up here, but they may not be your friends. But but you you you'll give an account. He first he first findeth his own brother, Simon. Your brother, your mom, your son. And he saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. We found Jesus. We found the Savior. And Andrew brought Simon, his brother, to Jesus. Bringing them to Jesus. The first is helping them to Jesus. Come and see. This is, this is bringing them to Jesus. We found Jesus. And he brought him to Jesus. I love this. You probably have this marked. About every two years I go through this, but I love it. And when Jesus beheld Peter, he said, Thou art, it's underlined here before me, Thou art, Simon, that means little pebble, son of Jonah, that's your dad. That's why the Bible says Simon Bar, Jonah. Bar means son of. Simon Bar, son of Jonah. He says, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, but thou shalt be called Cephas, which is a big bedrock, which is by interpretation a stone. But notice what Jesus did. He said, Thou art, thou shalt be. Thou art, thou shalt be. Listen, if you give them to Jesus, that's all they need. You give them to Jesus, you are. This is what you can be. This is what you are now. This is what you can be. Anything that has a gospel in it is a form of witnessing. I've heard people say before that, well, witnessing, if you're inviting them to church, that's not witnessing. Well, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Let me ask you a question. Do, we, do, do the songs that we sing have the gospel in it? Do they talk about Christ? Yes. When they hear preaching, do we talk about Christ? Do we talk about the gospel? Yes. When they come to church, do they hear the gospel? Yes. Well, absolutely. When you invite them to church, it's a form of witnessing. I was preaching up in, in Lynchburg a while back, and I was preaching to a, a large church, and I made that statement. I said, witness, uh, inviting people to church is a form of the gospel, and the pastor was over there about to shout amen. 
we went out to eat later, and he said, I'm so glad you said that. He said, I get so tired of people saying kind of what I just said, that it's not. He said, it is. And I said, absolutely. Now, there's more to it than that. Giving them, and I talked to you about this last week, helping people come to Christ. Giving them music that has the gospel in it. Giving them books that have the word of God. Anything that has it, that has the gospel in it. My message is not our church. My message is Jesus. In fact, I know that, uh, again, I'm not trying to correct things that we're trying to do with, with our city thing at all. But you know, we've we got to be careful that, well, because I know we, we want to connect them here so we can disciple them. That's the idea. But that, well, well Friendship Baptist Church is doing this for you. We're doing this in the name of Christ. And I don't want to be legalist about it. But I don't want people thinking in terms of, of buildings or, or denominations. We're doing this for, for Christ. We're doing this for... We're, as a church, we do this. We're doing it because Jesus told us to do this. Jesus said in John twelve thirty two, and, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all men. He's 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 a magnet. You know, y- y'all need to come to our church. We, we well, we we got we got a great band. I tell you, our guitar player, he he can really riff. We got a orchestra, second to none. Our pastor, wow, he can really preach. We got a really great youth program. Our building is beautiful. Our, our yard is manicured. You know, none of those things inherently wrong. In fact, they can be an obstacle to the gospel. But if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we're not lifting up Jesus. I, I like it. We don't say it much, and it's okay, because sometimes they can just become sayings. Was it Charles Spurgeon that said this when he prayed? said, Lord, hide me behind the cross of Christ as I preach. It was said that the difference between Spurgeon and other men when they preached, when people would hear preachers in London, and there were some of the greatest preachers, if not of all time, in that era when Spurgeon, there were tremendous preachers in London, that some people would hear men preach and they'd say, oh, man, what a great preacher. But when they heard Spurgeon, they left, they would say, oh, what a great Savior. And if you read Charles Spurgeon today, you will understand. When I read Spurgeon, he makes me love Jesus more. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. The Old Testament, the people had rebelled against Israel, had rebelled against God. They were complaining. And God turned these, these serpents loose. Some people think they were cobra types because the Bible says that they, their bites burned and so forth. And Moses, God told Moses, he said, I want you to, to fashion a, a brass serpent and hold that high up in the camp. And if people would just look, they will live. There's a gospel song about look and live. I think it's in our book. Look and live. Just look at the serpent and you will live. John chapter 3 and verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
Even so, Jesus said, must the Son of Man be lifted up. We need to bring people to Jesus. Now, we bring them to the church because here we can disciple them. But our church isn't important. It's Jesus. The preacher's not important. The Son of Man, Christ, is lifted up. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Helping people come to Jesus. Bringing people to Jesus. I want to read you a little parable. I think I'm going to stop there. I have a lot more to give. But I'll read you this parable. and We'll pick this up. I really want to finish today. I'll close with this. It came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish. And the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, those who called themselves fishermen, met in meetings and talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might go about fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means, defended fishing as an occupation, and declared that fishing is always to be a primary task of fishermen. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing and for new and better definitions of fishing. They love slogans such as fishing is a task of every fisherman and every fisherman is a fisher. They sponsored special meetings called fishermen's campaigns and the month for fishermen to fish. They sponsored costly nationwide and worldwide congresses to discuss fishing, to promote fishing and hear about all the ways of fishing such as the new fishing equipment, fish calls. Didn't know there was such a thing. And whether any new bait was discovered. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, they didn't fish. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. All the fishermen seemed to agree that what was needed is a board which could challenge fishermen to be faithful in fishing. The board was formed by those who had the great vision and courage to speak about fishing, to define fishing, and to promote the idea of fishing in faraway streams and lakes where many other fish of different colors lived. The board hired staffs and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing, and decide what new streams should be thought about. 
But the staff and committee members did not fish. Large, elaborate, and expensive training centers were built whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Over the years, courses were offered on the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to find fish, the psychological reactions to fish, how to approach and feed fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology, but the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. Year after year, after tedious training, many were graduated and giving fishing licenses. They were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters that were filled with fish. Some spent much study and travel to learn the history of fishing and to see faraway places where the founding fathers did great fishing in centuries past. They lauded the faithful fishermen of years before who handed down the idea of fishing. Further, the fishermen built large printing houses to publish fishing guides. Presses were kept busy day and night, produced materials solely devoted to fishing methods, equipment, and programs to arrange and encourage meetings to talk about fishing. A speakers bureau was also provided to schedule special speakers on the subject of fishing. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned and sent to fish. But like fishermen back home, they never fished. Like the fishermen back home, they engaged in all kinds of other occupations. They built power plants to pump water for fish and tractors to plow new waterways. They made all kinds of equipment to travel here and there to look at fish hatcheries. Some also said they wanted to be part of the fishing party, but they felt called to furnish fishing equipment. Others felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way so the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. Others felt that simply letting the fish know they were nice, land-loving neighbors and how loving and kind they were was enough. After one stirring meeting on the necessity for fishing, one young fellow left the meeting and he went fishing. The next day he reported that he had caught two outstanding fish. He was honored for his excellent catch and scheduled to visit all the big meetings possible to tell how he did it. So he quit his fishing in order to have time to tell about his experience to the other fishermen. He was also placed on the fisherman's general board as a person having considerable experience. Now it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who had made fun of the fishermen's clubs. and The fact that they claimed to be fishermen yet never fished. They wondered about those who felt it was of little use to attend the weekly meetings to talk about fishing. After all, were they not following the master who said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men? Imagine how hurt some were when one day 
a person suggested that those who didn't catch fish were really not fishermen, no matter how much they claimed to be. Yet it did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year he never catches a fish? Would you bow your heads with me this morning, please?